You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Having a dream is what keeps you alive. Overcoming the challenges makes life worth living. Mary Tyler Moore. Join me at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Tamberlane. Dr. Tamberlane is Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale University School of Medicine. He is the Director of the Children's Diabetes Program, Deputy Director of the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation, and is the 2006 recipient of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Excellence in Clinical Research Award. Hi, Bill, and thanks again for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Yeah, hi, Bill. I, I'm sure our uh, professors at Georgetown Medical School didn't realize what great students we were. I think you've gone far further than I have. <laughs> Today we're discussing living with diabetes. It's got to be heart-wrenching for the child and for the family to be handed the diagnosis of diabetes. Tell me, Bill, how do you talk to the family and the child who's just been diagnosed with diabetes? And what do you say to them? Uh, what picture do you paint? I'm glad you asked that because... The first thing we actually do is talk about that. That's one of the most important things, not the medical issues. What is the emotional response of a parent to finding out that they have diabetes? And and, and actually, there's been a lot of work done on this, and it's it's very much like a grief response. It's like uh, somebody had died or a healthy child. They, you know, they had a healthy child. All of a sudden, they have this condition that's not going to to go away. So we talk about being sad, we talked about feelings of being overwhelmed, we talk about issues about guilt, did I do something wrong? Occasionally if the diagnosis has been delayed, we talk about the tendency to, you know, it's nice to be able to unload a lot of your emotions and blame the doctor for not picking this up sooner. We talk about genetic factors. I always tell them that all my grandparents were from Italy and if one of our child had diabetes, they would try to figure out who had the bad blood in their family and all of these kind of issues because it's very important to get those out in the open rather than uh, let people brood about those issues. What kind of picture do you paint for the future? Do you take it one day at a time or do you try and, you know, lead them down the path and show them what brightness may be ahead at the future? Hey, we tell them that, okay, well, you have about... 12 to 24 hours to feel this way. And and what our job is now is to take it from there and allow you to regain your confidence and, and you know, both as a parent and, and, and learn what you need to learn to take really good care of this condition. And, and we assure them that if we all work together, we're doing a remarkable job in taking care of diabetes now compared to when I started 32 years ago. You said you had 24 hours. They're only allowed to feel sorry for themselves for 24 hours. They're going to get to work, roll up our sleeves. It was our job to, to give them the tools that they needed to be able to take care of the diabetes. We actually do still admit patients to the hospital for, you know, one and a half to two and a half days. Again, to give the parents some breathing room so that they don't feel they have to, you know, be immediately competent to take care of this condition. And a fair number of kids would get admitted anyway because they have high glucose and ketones. But I'm glad someone still has the guts to stand up to the insurance companies. There hasn't been too much of a problem. Good. Your program at Yale has certainly been recognized as a center of excellence in the care of children with diabetes. What's special about your program and what do you do differently? First of all, you might classify our program as an early adopter. You know, we've been involved, for example, with pump therapy for many years. For a long time, kids were, 
even the, in the history of pump therapy, it took about 18 years before pumps started to be actually used again in children. And we have over 70% of our patients who are doing uh, extremely well on insulin pump therapy. And then the other really strong point that I go out of my way to emphasize is is that we have a strong nurse practitioner orientation to our clinical program. That you know this is an academic institution. There are many things that distract me from our clinical mission as far as research and administration. And we've been fortunate to have over the years a series of wonderful nurse practitioners who can who understand what it takes to take good care of diabetes and can be available on a 24-hour basis to assist our our families actually i think the the most dramatic success i ever had was when the nurses agreed to our nurse practitioners agreed to take night call you know that's actually a strong element of success not just the nurse practitioner but the, the whole concept of multidisciplinary team approach with uh, dietitians, social work, psychologists, uh, et cetera. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. William Tamberlane, Chief of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale School of Medicine. We're discussing living with diabetes. So what's it like today for a child to live with diabetes? Are there restrictions on their activity levels? What if they want to play a contact sport or go deep-sea diving? There's no restrictions, but it, it's foolhardy to say that diabetes does not affect, you know, you can do anything. You can do anything you want, but what I like to say is if you have diabetes, you have to be like a Boy Scout all the time because you have to be prepared. You have to, you know, accommodate to the issues about diabetes and those things that you do. So it is a tremendous burden on families and kids to just pay attention. As I tell even our youngsters, you know, they may think, oh, taking the shots is bad or pricking your fingers is bad. But over time, what really is the challenge is just to work diabetes into your life and having to be aware of it all the time. Now, having said that, it's remarkable how wonderful our kids are doing. When I started back in, the, I started in 1975, hemoglobin A1C assays were introduced in the late 70s, early 80s. And I can tell you that back then, our average hemoglobin A1Cs in levels in teenagers was about 11%. Now, 11% hemoglobin A1C is equivalent to an average plasma glucose of over 300 a day. Now, with the use of pumps, multiple injection regimens, you know, our multidisciplinary team, our average hemoglobin A1C is down to the range of 7.5%, which is an average blood sugar of maybe 150 milligrams per deciliter, and our pump patients are more in the range of 7.2%. And this is a tremendous benefit. We've shown that if you could get levels down here with the diabetes control and complications trial, that you could markedly delay or prevent early vascular complications of diabetes. And in fact, we just did a survey that we published in Diabetes Care a few months ago that looked at our patients and who had diabetes up to 17 years duration and, you know, were up to 22 years of age. And none of those kids had any evidence that diabetes had affected their blood vessels in their eyes. That's really remarkable. It's remarkable. I mean, in the past, if you had diabetes you know, when you're running A1Cs of 10 or 11%, if you had diabetes for 
six, seven, or eight years, you almost had a 90% prevalence of early retinopathy. It's like one of the most gratifying data that we've ever generated as far as I'm concerned. So it is paying off. Okay, it's paying up, but it is difficult. It's difficult for the patient. It's difficult for the parents. It's difficult for the cl- clinic to keep it going just because of the kind of staffing you need. And we do need better therapies, and uh, that's why we're very excited about the introduction of continuous glucose monitoring techniques, both for current-day therapy with pumps or multiple injections, and then as we might apply in the future to produce an artificial pancreas. You mentioned improvement in retinopathy. Have you seen other positive changes, be it the microalbuminuria, LDL levels? In this paper, we actually looked at the microalbuminuria in these patients as well. There was some microalbuminuria that was like 3%. Other kids had either microalbuminuria or were on an ACE inhibitor because of microalbuminuria. Actually, that's considerably lower than other reports from not too long ago where the A1C is 8, 9, or 10%. We've seen uh, microalbuminuria prevalence rate in patients 10 years of age and, you know, 10 to 22 years of age up to 15%. Microalbuminuria is, it's not like being able to look into the eyes and see the blood vessels. There are some factors that might even be false positive microalbuminuria, such as, you know, postural proteinuria. And I guess post-exercise. Post-exercise proteinuria, exactly. So uh, I think that's very encouraging as well. Matter of fact, in this paper, one of the things was, at least in pediatrics in our age range, we were contending that the idea that we might actually be able to avoid sending young people who were well-controlled and had no microalbuminuria and had normal blood pressure, that might be sufficient screening, early screening for microvascular complication risk. That might, we might be able to avoid some of the eye exams. You've certainly taught your patients a lot. What have you learned from them? I mean, they teach you what's important for diabetes. I mean, I think the most they ever learned from diabetes was, again, back in the old days. When we first did our, in, our early insulin pump studies, we brought 15 or 20 patients and we kept them in the hospital for two weeks and we had hourly blood sugars every day for two weeks. And, th- and this was at a period of time where, I mean, they were just beginning to introduce finger stick testing. So I learned so much from that, you know, just looking at blood sugars day after day. And uh, I mean, that's just the simple medical aspects. I would like to thank Dr. William Tamberlane, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing living with diabetes. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.